Right. Amen. All right, grab your Bibles. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 19. <coughs> We're going to be in verse, the last few, last few verses of this chapter, 41 through 48. And things are getting exciting. Whew. As he approached the city and saw, I'm sorry, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst. Because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. He went into the temple and began to throw out those who were selling. And he said, yelled more like, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. But they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what he said. Lord Jesus, be with us. Lord, show us your glory. Show us your goodness. Show us your heart. God, the depths of your goodness, the depths of your joy, and the depths of hope in the midst of suffering, in the midst of unbelief around us. God, show us how to stand firm in our faith with the full armor of God, Lord, of love. How to love each other, you, each other, and others, God, around us in our world. Lord, to draw them into your goodness, to see and experience the depths of your heart. Lord, be with us. Speak through me now, God. Give me wisdom to speak. Give, us, give me your words and direct this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All right. <coughs> Whew. See how it loads here. Oh, yeah. In our lives... Are we, do we consider ourselves to be emotional people? Do we feel emotions in our lives? Do we allow ourselves to feel emotions in our lives? My counselor said, you know, helped counsel me a while back, about like, you know, last year, about actually being able to feel things. Because it seems like I kind of throw on a happy exterior sometimes and just like tell jokes when I feel uncomfortable or, or more depressed or anxious. It's my defense mechanism a lot of times. So processing through that. Okay, stopping. Don't tell jokes. Process. Feel. Feel it physically. Feel it emotionally. Feel it mentally, spiritually. Like, feel things with God. Do we allow ourselves to feel? There, I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can take this concept of emotions in our world today. Uh, like, do we allow our emotions? But um, you know, basically, like, have we asked ourselves a question? Are human emotions, are our, our, our emotions in general, a part of the human experience. Where do they come from? If they're a part of humanity, if, if humans feel emotions, where do we get them from? 
from the Imago Dei, from the image of God in which we were created. We were created in the image of God. In the image of God, God created us, right? Genesis 1. Which leads us to ask the question, if we were made in God's image, then is God emotional? What is God, Jesus, feeling in this moment? In, in this circumstance? In, this, in, these, in our chapter today, in our, in, our, in our passages today, what is God feeling? What is Jesus feeling? Reading this passage, and the way that I got emotional and for a whole lot of reasons we'll get to. (laughs) What were you feeling? What emotions stirred in your heart as you were hearing the words of God in the Bible? What was your your heart feeling? Now, it's interesting. If you take a look back, ancient Near Eastern religions generally believed that the many gods were led by their emotions. You know, old old gods. They were fickle and unpredictable. They could be super, super bipolar. You'd be like super happy one moment and like destroy you and burn your face off in the next because you forgot to offer them a sacrifice in the temple, right? Or you made them mad. Or another god in the, de- in, the, in the pantheon made them mad and so they took it out on humanity. They were fickle. They were led by emotions. Later, however, the Greco-Romans, the Greco-Roman intellectuals view swung to the opposite extreme where be, you know, they believing instead that the gods were unemotional. That they did not feel, they did not, they were not led by emotions, nor did they express emotions. To the pagans, the gods were either fickle or stoic. And the Stoics is actually where we got our Western culture in America. It's where the, the founding fathers got the American culture. Much of Western society and the way that we live our lives comes from this. Like men not wanting to show their emotions. You know, keep it in, be strong. It's a very Western, Stoic thing that comes from the Roman Empire. Um, Then Jesus comes along. God himself walking among us, dwelling among us in the flesh, giving us a picture and showing us an emotional God who is not led by his emotions, but is deeply and expressively emotional. He expresses the deep, full emotions of God. He fully expresses the depths of all human emotion throughout the Gospels. Because that's how God created us to be. He created us to be emotional. We were created in God's image, and that includes emotions. So, in our passage here this morning, Jesus expresses great passion and compassion for God's people. Always remember that he is always for God's people. Remember that. We're going to need to remember that this morning. Um, these two events recorded are, are here are connected. The, the two passages of Jesus weeping and Jesus um, getting ticked off and going and clearing the temple, right? Or cleansing the temple, as all of, a lot of your Bibles will say. Uh, they come to, you know, fr- they come from the same place. They are both expressions of great, deep emotion from deep within the heart of God. They reveal something powerful to us. And this is why we sang that last song. They reveal that God loves us. God loves us deeply, 
genuinely loves us. And he weeps for and with us. He wouldn't weep over his people if he didn't. And he also wouldn't, he wouldn't rage, he wouldn't get angry if he didn't love his people. In our passage, I ask this question. Why does Jesus weep and rage? Why does Jesus weep and rage? This comes from Malachi 4, uh, verse 5, and, and actually is quoted in Acts in Peter's great sermon, Acts 2.20. Says, look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before, here it is, the great and terrible or glorious day the Lord comes. Let's look at the great and terrible glorious day of the Lord. Whew, this is where it gets real. So hopefully this is not just going to be a depressing history lesson. Um, <laughs> Luke, so Luke is written before all these things take place. And so this is still for Luke a prophecy that is yet to come. He is writing these words that take up um, everything that is, has been leading up to um, our passage um, here today. Jesus has been leading up to our passage today. Jesus is leading up to and, and leading up to. He's, he's, he's bearing the lead in essence. Um, he's just, he's always telling you what's happening and what is the focus of Jesus's ministry. We talked about this several times over the last year, year and a half. Jesus's big emphasis and big warning is AD 70 is the destruction of Jerusalem and Israel and everything. This is what Jesus has been leading up to this entire book. So let's look at AD 70. The Jewish wars began in in 66 AD, and they were a direct revolt by the Jews against Rome's authority. Titus, with his Roman legions, arrived at the outermost northern wall of Jerusalem, the Passover of of AD 70. This is about 40 years after the Passover in Luke. About 40 years. If we know anything about God, he does things every... 40 years, there's something huge. 40 is a big number for God, right? So 40 years later, on Passover, the day, basically the exact day in the future, the Romans built embankments of earthenwork. They placed battering rams and the siege began. What Jesus would prophesy, what happened in our passage today? What did it say? They will barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. That's what happens. They allowed pilgrims, uh, you know, pilgrimage Jews into the city for Passover, but did not allow them to leave. They surrounded them all on all sides with four legions, one on each side of Roman soldiers. They cut off the food supply into the city to weaken them in preparation for their invasion. It's about five months. The Roman army numbered 30,000 people, while the Jewish army numbered 24,000. According to Tacitus, there were about 600,000 visitors, plus the hundreds of thousands of Jerusalem locals crowded into the streets of Jerusalem, into the city for Passover. After five months, the walls were battered down. The great temple was burned down and the city was left ruined and desolate, except for Herod's three great towers at the northwest corner of the city. 
These served as a memorial of the massive strength of Jerusalem's fortifications, which Titus of Rome had brought to rubble, which is interesting. The video that we watched, the last video, uh, As For Me and My House, that was filmed at one of those towers, the Tower of David that was left. The legions of Rome brought the captives to Caesarea, and then over one million Jews were killed. 95,000 captives were taken as prisoners to Rome. Among them was Josephus. If you know anything about Josephus, Josephus was uh, a famous ancient Jewish historian that gives us a lot of information about the time of Jesus, about the the community in Qumran and the Dead Sea, and all the the great history of Israel in in these early centuries. And this is Josephus' account, because he was in Jerusalem that day. Titus entered the temple and actually was impressed with its opulence, and he desired to preserve it. But as the legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their impetuosity. Passion alone was in command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled by their friends. Many fell among the still hot and smoking ruins of the colonnades and died as miserably as as the defeated. As they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands to stop and urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands, throw in more firebrands. The partisans were no longer in a position to help. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher about the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. While the temple was ablaze, the attackers plundered it, and countless people who were caught by them were slaughtered. There was no pity, for age and no regard was accorded rank. Children and old men, laymen and priests alike were butchered. Every class was pursued and crushed in the grip of war, whether they cried out for mercy or offered resistance. Through the roar of the flames streaming far and wide, the groans of the falling victims were heard. Such was the height of of the hill and the magnitude of the blazing pile that the entire city seemed to be ablaze. And the noise, nothing more deafening and frightening could be imagined. There were the war cries of of the Roman legions as they swept onward in mass, the yells of the rebels encircled by fire and sword, the panic of the people who, cut off from above, fled into the arms of the enemy, and their shrieks as they met their fate. The cries on the hill blended with those of the multitudes in the city below. And now many people who were exhausted and tongue-tied as a result of hunger, when they beheld the temple on fire, found strength once more to lament and wail. Perea and the surrounding hills added their echoes to the deafening din. But more horrifying than the din were the sufferings. The temple mount, everywhere enveloped in flames, seemed to be boiling over from its base, yet the blood seemed more abundant than the flames, and the number of the slain greater than those of the slayers. The soldiers climbed over heaps of bodies as they chased the fugitives. Then they proceeded to destroy everything, dismantling Jerusalem down to the level that no one would remember the name Jerusalem. They wanted to blot out every memory of the city or its name. They then brought the captives, the treasures, as depicted here, 
and the Jewish leaders back to Rome and paraded them through the streets before executing the leaders in front of the cheering crowds. Then, taking the treasures, they went up to the temples to offer worship to their gods. It is interesting to note, this is an interesting note I found in the research. It is interesting to note that it has been reported that extra-biblical, synonym-biblical sources, extra-biblical sources say that Titus, who led the Roman legions, actually refused to accept the wreath of victory. They would always get a you know, wreath of victory for the Romans and stuff. He refused it. I thought it was interesting. As he claimed that he had not won the victory on his own, but he had simply been the vehicle through which the God of Israel had manifested his wrath against his people. So even the Roman emperor understood what happened in Jerusalem. Not interesting. According to, to Eusebius, this is an early church, early church historian about the third century. The Christians, they saw all the warnings that we're going to talk about in 1920 and 21. They saw all the things that Jesus pointed out and they got out of Dodge. They abandoned ship. They were berated and oftentimes beat up by the Jews for wanting to leave. They were abandoning the holy city. They were like, I see the signs. I'm out. And they fled and they dispersed. <clears throat> and they were dispersed out the empire. And Jesus' warning was heeded by the Jerusalem church. They fled and were saved, thus preserving the church. As we think about this, if you hear those words, man, I've been sitting with this all week. <laughs> been kind of in a little funk. But <laughs> imagine this. How can we imagine this in America? How can we imagine what this would feel like if we turned on the news and saw newsreel after newsreel after newsreel of an opposing nation, allied forces that combine, say the communists, like all combined together into one big allied force to attack America, and none of our allies come to our aid. No one. They destroy the White House. We see it burning. We see the Statue of Liberty on fire, in rum, in, you know, tipped over into the, into the Potomac. The Capitol destroyed. Senators running for their lives on fire. Supreme Court building destroyed in rubble. The Lincoln Memorial Lincoln's face in the ground and being pounded by hammers. The Washington Monument collapse in rubble. Wall Street destroyed. The new World Trade Center toppled. Liberty Hall, all the historical documents, the Constitution on fire. The Pentagon, gone. The Federal Reserve, gone. FBI, CIA, all the military bases in and outside the country, reel after reel after reel, every, everything you see that gives us our, our identity as a country, as America, not Montanans, but Americans, everything that gives us our national, national, political, financial, economic, and cultural identity on fire, in, 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 in rubble on the ground. Soldiers slain all over the ground. Men, women, children. You just see heaps of bodies. And then, the next week, they proceed to even nuke the country, starting with Manhattan and Washington, D.C. Everything's gone. 
Then they focus on major cities like L.A., Houston, Boston, Seattle, Portland, Chicago, Denver, Salt Lake City, Las Vegas. Everything. Gone. We're talking 9-11 times thousands. Times ten thousands. Millions. Slain. Dead. Vaporized. Everything that makes America, America. Our entire nation, economic, social, cultural, identity, gone, destroyed, decentralized. So now our identity resides at a state level, in a local city, trying to make ends meet, trying to figure out how to live our life, completely disconnected from everything. That's what it was like for them. Because not only had the Romans come in and destroyed Jerusalem and Israel, they had crucified people and killed people thousands upon thousands upon thousands on their way to Jerusalem. All the woe to yous, you know, Corazon and, and Capernaum, yeah, we were, he had a reason. Because they would also suffer the same fate as Jerusalem. This is why Jesus weeps. He was looking at Jerusalem and knowing what it's going to look like to see the the smoke, to see the children, the women and men, old men, young men, teenagers, bleeding, beheaded, burning, That's why Jesus weeps. This is why Jesus weeps and rages. This is what causes great anger because he knows that this is going to happen. He has warned the nation over and over and over again. And they still stubbornly say, I want none of it, Jesus. Shut your trap. And go away. I'm tired of hearing it, Jesus. But God is zealous for his people. And God is compassionate for his people. He's compassionate and zealous over what? The great and terrible death and destruction of Israel. He's broken. He's compassionate and zealous over their disobedience and hard-heartedness that what it would cause and bring upon their families. Jesus wept because he knew what was in store for Jerusalem, the temple, and all of Israel because of the rejection of him. We covered this months ago in Luke chapter 13. What did he say? If you don't consider God's ways and change, you will likewise perish. And they do. In their rejection, in their rejection of the king of kings and their refusal to honor him, humble themselves and come to believe in the gospel of the kingdom, they would be overcome and overthrown by the pagan king to the praise and the glory of the demon god, Jupiter, or Zeus, of the the Greco-Roman pantheon. That's the god that that, that Titus took all of Rome to go and worship after he returned in victory. 
he went to go and pay homage to Zeus in Rome. Jupiter. In their rejection of the king of kings, they were destroyed. It's interesting to think about what we even covered much long, further ago than that. Do you remember when we talked about the god Pan and the word pandemonium or Pandora's box unleashing pandemonium and ridiculousness going crazy, unrestrained wrath, unrestrained everything, just everything gone. Basically, remember we talked about that, that Pan was a symbol of Lucifer himself, of Satan, of the devil. And the way that he works is by creating pandemonium. Legitimate pandemonium. There was a scream in, 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 the, in the worship. You know, one of the women, that, in, when, they're, when they're worshiping Pan, screams, and then everyone go, goes nuts. It goes crazy. Um, and this is what we were talking about. Like, so in the, in the account, Titus himself, like, he, he, like they're attacking, you know, attacking Jerusalem. He actually gets to go inside the temple. They like make a way and he and, and, the, and the rulers and, and the, the, the generals get to go in the temple. And they're like, whoa, yeah, they weren't kidding. This is gorgeous. This is amazing. Let's not burn this down. Let's, let's actually keep this. This is, this is so much good stuff in here. Let's keep it and take it back to Rome. But not even the generals and the leaders and the majors and Titus, the Caesar himself, could stop the pandemonium. Who was in charge that day? Lucifer himself. There was the screams and pandemonium ensued. Not even people, though they were stumbling over each other. Crushing. crushing each other. So he said their friends would even trample them each other. This is the presence of Satan laughing in victory over God's people. He thinks. Jesus is compassionate and zealous over the cultural brokenness, the religious, political, and social brokenness. He is passionate when his people are not experiencing hope, life, purpose, joy, and flourishing. Right? Jeremiah 29, 11, we'll talk about it later, but I know the plans I have for you. Plans for what? Life, shalom, flourishing, peace, and not for your harm, to give you a hope and a future. He is compassionate and zealous when that is broken. He's compassionate and zealous over their refusal to believe in him. Jesus weeps because Jerusalem, like the rest of the towns of the north, has rejected his call for peace, for the gospel of God's grace, which would reach out in love to the Gentile world. They refuse to believe in him. God himself in their midst. He's compassionate and zealous over the testimony of what Jerusalem was meant to be. That's what he was saying in their passage. The glory and the beauty of God in the world is what Jerusalem was supposed to be. They're supposed to show the world the goodness of God, the goodness of Yahweh, the mercy of Yahweh, the love of Yahweh, the power and the might and the glory of Yahweh in the world. It was supposed to be, I mean, even the name itself, Yeshu Yerushalem, means city of peace. Shalom. Shalem. Shalom. Hear it? Yaru means house of or city dwelling of peace, of God's creation. The light of the world that was meant to draw all mankind to Yahweh. That's what God was desiring. That was what they were meant for. 
And number five, the closeness and intimacy God desired to have with His people. It's supposed to draw all people to, to Him so that God could have love and intimate relationship with all people. Drawing people in. They, they wrongly believed that God was nationalistic to preserve the nation and faith of an Israel that had long abandoned their God and the worship of God with sincere hearts. Because they refused to be close, to come close to God with sincere hearts. They did things out of duty, out of fear. We've got to do this or else the Pharisees are going to be on my butt. We've got to do this or else God's not going to love me. They did things out of fear. Jesus was filled with sorrow and zeal, passion and compassion. Jesus was sad and he knew that they would not change their minds. They would go on from bad to worse. They would reject and even kill Jesus himself. But that didn't stop or keep him from from acting and going into the temple. Sorrow caused Jesus to act, to engage for the sake of the few. He knew that the nation was screwed. The nation was lost. They, as a nation, the leaders, they were refusing. But Jesus' heart, Jesus' passion, Jesus' desire and zeal was for the few that he could love and serve and who would believe in him. He could make a little bit of change and his church could make a little bit of change that would cause a a greater change. He didn't just resign and say, well, society as a whole will not change, therefore I'm just going to abandon ship. Not say anything, I'm just going to be silent. I'm just going to be quiet. It was the preparation of Passover during this time. And it's interesting, I had a conversation with my friend Bryce, who's a pastor over in, in Livingston, and it's interesting to think about. So this was the days you know, leading up to Passover. And these days before Passover were the days of preparation. And in these days of preparation, you know what the families would be doing? They'd be going all through their house looking for this thing called chametz. Chametz, which is fun to say, chametz, 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 <laughs> is leaven. Is, is the leaven. So they're getting all the, the leaven. They're getting anything leavened, like, you know, challah bread or things like that. They're getting all, all the leaven and bread and anything that has yeast in it out of their home. Because it represented sin. Um, as Jesus even said, you know, don't, you know, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, as we talked about months ago. So the, the search for chametz symbolized getting the sin out of their households, out of their lives as a people. Um, so they would purify their hearts, to cleanse their consciences for the Passover. When God would pass over his people, he would enter into the house and be their protection against the destroyer. Um, and so it's interesting that 40 years later, God would not pass over the threshold to protect them. God would, with, would withhold his hand of protection from Israel. Where did Jesus go during this time of preparation? As it says, you know, 12-year-old Jesus said, and this day what he says, he's what? My father's house. He went home. Jesus went home to remove the leaven. 
to remove the leaven of sin from the temple. They were occupying the, the space, these, these money changers. It says, you know, they went to the temple to throw out those who were selling. Uh, in other chapters, we see those who are, who are, who are you know, the money traders, the money, you know, the, and like the people who are selling the animals for Passover. Because um, a lot of times, you know, they would be traveling from like Egypt or, you know, over in uh, Turkey, which is now Turkey, which would be like, or Greece or something. So they didn't travel with the sheep. So they would buy one from, remember, from in between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. One of, the, one of the, the sacrifices. They would go and buy a sacrifice, purchase a sacrifice, live with it for two weeks, for, for 14 days, as I said, and then they would prepare the home and then slaughter the Passover lamb at the time of preparation, right? And so uh, this was the time. So these people were buying and selling, but here's the thing, that they were ripping off travelers. They were deceiving and ripping off even more so the Gentiles, they hated Gentiles, even even Gentiles that were God-fearers that would come and worship the Lord in the temple. The ones who the temple was supposed to attract. The temple, this, and this was their only space. Because you had the inner courts and the altar and the big building in the middle. But then the rest of it, the majority of the temple mount was where the women and the Gentiles could worship and pray. It was the only space. And these sellers and money traders were taking up the space that was meant for prayer, for worship. They were being unloving to their fellow brothers. They were occupying that space. They were in deep sin and distorting the holiest place in all of Israel, in all the world. Not only that, but they were cheating them. Jesus' sorrow over the sad state of Israel was not over simply the religious state of the nation, but over the political, economical, and cultural degradation of the nation of Israel. And this sorrow turned to rage. That he, from weeping, I mean, think about this, this emotional roller coaster that Jesus was on, from being worshipped and praised, Hosanna, praise he who comes in the name of the Lord, at the triumphal entry that we talked about last week. People throwing down their, down their cloaks and waving and excitement and smiling. I could see this travel on this donkey being so bittersweet. Because he, he knew what was coming, he was trying to enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, that's right, I'm here, woohoo! And then he, he comes over the hill and he come, starts coming down the Mount of Olives and he sees Jerusalem. He's like, oh, crap. And then just to see, to be one of the disciples to look at, being looking at Jesus and worshiping him and all of a sudden for his face to just darken, change, and then just tears start to stream from his face. What can you imagine the disciples are feeling? As they're seeing this, they're probably like, uh, what did I do, Jesus? Did you stub your toe? What's going, what's going, what's going on? Did someone say something to you? Like, what's up? And how do you think they're hearing these words? If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. And they will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Imagine hearing those words as a disciple. What would you feel? And then to see how, the, how Jesus' emotions shifted. He got into the temple and instead of like going back to like this teaching and excitement of this joy because it's Passover, like you're supposed to have when you come into the temple, 
His face turns red. The veins in his forehead start popping out like dad. You know, they're like, oh crap, I know that face. <laughs> and he goes. Here's the, here's the thing that we, that, we don't, that we realize from other passages. Jesus doesn't take a noisemaker. He doesn't pick up an, a noisemaker. Like type wit. He takes a core, a, a brand of cords, which is used to beat animals. So he's charging, he's running them out of the temple, but he's also hitting people. That's why they're leaving. He's flipping tables. He's pissed. Jesus is livid at this point, at this moment. He is in a rage, full on rage. A passion to restore that which was broken, un- unjust, injustice to shalom, to flourishing. That's what justice is. Justice is returning that which is broken, the, the broken shalom, back to flourishing, back to shalom. That's what being just in, certain, in fighting after justice is, is fighting for God's shalom. To his desire to get the leaven out. He's driving the leaven out. He's clearing the house for Passover. He engaged. He fought. He didn't stay silent. He acted boldly. He spoke strong words for the sake of those who could be saved and preserved. Even though the nation was lost and would be brought to nothing, he fought tooth and nail for the ones who could be saved, for the, the culture for their worship, for their love for the Lord to be restored to what God envisioned for them to be as a nation. Many saw, in, in, in Israel, all of Jerusalem and Israel, they saw the injustices. They saw the broken lives of the Pharisees. They saw the distortions and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the politics and, and the religious distortions of the temple. They knew the Ark of the Covenant wasn't in the Holy of Holies a.k.a. God's presence. They knew that there were traditions of men that were added to the Bible that were not biblical. They, they did nothing for years. Even many of the Pharisees jumped ship and joined Jesus because they saw the brokenness of their own party. Nicodemus, right? Joseph of Arimathea. What hindered both the religious rulers and people from worshiping God in spirit and in truth? What hindered them from also engaging themselves from acting? What, what keeps us from engaging in areas where we see injustice, where we see wrong, where we see evil winning, where we see distortions of God's creation? Do we engage? Why or why not? I would say the, the, the majority, most of us do not engage is fear. It's been said that fear you know, stands for false evidence appearing real. This is kind of a Alan, an Alanism of, you know, you've heard it said, but I say, so this is what I say. Foreboding everything about reality. Oh, I just, it was the... Oh, the, there's the, the false evidence appearing real is kind of what people say about it, but you've heard it said this. But I say that fear is foreboding everything about reality. Foreboding everything about reality. Do you know that there's, you know, the synonyms of fear is not simply being afraid, but it's angst, terror, dread, distress, anxiety, worry, doubt, 
suspicion, unrest in our spirit, and foreboding. That's where I got that word, foreboding. Fear isn't simply being afraid. It's living in unrest. It's living your life worried in dread of every day, a dread of the things around us, dread of what could happen next, dread of the other shoe, dread and foreboding every day. It's, not, it's, it's simply not living, being paralyzed. It is a cowardice to doing anything because we're afraid. We don't, we don't know what's going to happen the next day. It is a type of chronic apathy. As has been said for generations, the only thing necessary for, for uh, the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. Nations have risen and fallen. Men and women have lived through the best of times and the worst of times for thousands and thousands of years. How? How do they endure? How do they endure them? How do we endure them today? How does God want us to live? Weep. And rage today. How does God want us to be filled with passion and compassion for his people? First, we have to remember his promises. Let's go back to the Jeremiah 29. This was a, a, a time actually way before, about 500, 500 years before uh, the destruction of Israel. Actually, about 600 years before the destruction of Israel. This was another time that God brought in an army, the Babylonians, to destroy Israel and Jerusalem. This was the first temple destruction. He says this. This was what Jesus was saying to the people back then. For this is what the Lord says. When 70 years for Babylon are complete, as Jesus will later say, the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, your, your shalom, not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me What, when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. I will be found by you. This promise is for us today. This is God's word. This was God's word for the, the Jews and the Christians in AD 70 specifically the Christians, this is God's promise for us today. This was God's promise to the Christians when they were suffering a great persecution in the third century. It's a great promise for those who died in the Black Plague. It's a great, great promise for us today, for Christians in Turkey, for Christians in America, for Christians right here in this room. This is our promise. And you can take this to the bank. Because remember what Jesus himself said in Matthew 28, the very last words of the Bible. Remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we can remember that when everything goes wrong, when there's so much fear and suffering all around us, we can remember another famous passage. This is, this would be, you know, if this was written in eighty seventy by like Josephus or someone, like someone who's coming in to Jerusalem after the destruction an annihilation of, of Jerusalem and, and all the Jews and walking around the bodies in the streets, seeing this happen. This is what Jeremiah is doing. He's walking around the streets of Jerusalem after the Babylonians have come in, after he has prophesied that God will, you know, I know the plans I have for you. He comes back to Jerusalem 
and he laments. And this is the words that he says from 19, you know, lament, lamentation, <laughs> lamentations, lamentations 3, 19. Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood of the po- and the poison. I continually remember, I continually remember them and have become depressed. Yet I call this to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies endure forever. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is still young. Let him sit alone and be silent, for God has disciplined him. And let him, let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is still hope. Let him, che- let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace, for the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to the abundance of his faithful love. For he does not enjoy bring, bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. In the midst of worry, chaos, uncertainty, suffering, and fear, Jesus has promised since, the, since day one. He promises life. He promises purpose. He promises peace or shalom. He promises joy. And he promises hope. We don't simply you know, possess these things or, or can, can just simply express these things because of the circumstances around us. We have to choose them. We have to remember God and His promises, which is why He said, remember, I'll be with you. We have to remember it. We have to choose to remember God's promises. We have to choose to remember God's presence. That I will be found with you, found by you. What? When you seek me, when you choose me, I'm there. We have to choose him. You can't choose something unless you are offered it and you are capable of receiving it. Like I wouldn't offer you, you know, uh, this this flower unless you could actually take one home. Like if I went out there and and like stood in front of the table, nope, sorry, keep keep walking. These are mine. I love them all. They're my flowers. You can't have them. I wouldn't offer one to you unless they were available to you. Jesus and you know, God would not offer you promises if they were not available to you. And if you believe that the promises of God are available to you, you should grasp them because they're good. In the midst of worry, we choose life. Because Jesus promised it. <clears throat> In the midst of chaos, we choose purpose. In the midst of uncertainty, unrest, we choose peace. We choose God's way of flourishing. In the midst of suffering around us, we choose joy. In the midst of fear, we choose hope. Which I will say is holding an optimistic perspective 
in everything. Why can we be optimistic? Not about the circumstances getting better, but how can we believe and have optimism about life in general? This word hope, it's interesting how it actually, I didn't know this about the word hope, has these connotations of cheerfulness, of confidence, assured, assuredness. I love this. Bullish. I was like, what is bullish? I've heard of bullish about the stock market, but what is it about, about hope? AKA it is resolute. Hope is something you choose. Hope is something that you choose because you have reason to have hope. Because God is so God. Because God holds all things together by the word of his power. Because God is with you. God is with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He has promised to be our hope. We have hope because Christ is with us and among us. Colossians 1, 26-27 says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of the mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We hope because our confidence, our hope, our resoluteness is grounded, is founded in Christ. God expresses, remember this, God expresses and, you know, great, expresses great compassion, passion and compassion for God's people. Then, all the way back here to the, to the first covenant and into the, the new covenant and still with us today. Jesus expresses great passion for you. Compassion for you. God loves us. Individually and corporately. Why? The Bible tells us so. The Bible, it's all over the scriptures. God loves his people. You. No matter the circumstances in your life, always know that God loves you. You are enough for him. His love is not based on conditions, how, you, how things are going in your life, or how, even how you're feeling. He will lavish His love on you. He knows you. He sees you. He hears you. He is with you. He fills you with His Holy Spirit. And He empowers you. He empowers you. He is filled with such passion and compassion. It is endless. And here's something that was, I was just struck with. And God brought it back to my memory just now when we were worshiping. God loves even all the Roman soldiers that went nuts on the Temple Mount in AD 70. God expressed. I can even see many of the legion after they left and went back to Rome getting tied to Paul. Or seeing and experiencing the church in Rome or wherever else they were sent. Maybe they were left in Caesarea and they got to see Jesus, you know, see Paul in prison there and see and hear his proclaiming and preaching and turn and believe in the Jesus that is the God of the temple that they just destroyed and turn and received God's love 
God's mercy and his grace. No one is too far gone. Everyone can receive God's grace if they will receive it. Because he wants to lavish his passion and compassion on all of us. To have life, purpose, joy, and hope. No matter where human history goes. So what does that look like in our lives? How are we filled with that same passion and compassion for ourselves? And then how do we take that love, experiencing that Jesus' great passion and compassion for us, and show it to each other in the church? And then how do we take that same passion and compassion that being filled and ministered to and being and loved and known and seen and heard and take that into our relationships so that they can experience the love, the passion, and the compassion of Christ. No matter what they've done in their lives. And they're creating all sorts of things to snub their God out there in the world. Turn on the news every day. Actually, no, turn off the news, please. We see on the news every day there's something new that the, that the world is distorting around us. Sexuality, finances, politics, faith, religion, culture itself, right? Everything. Everything is being distorted. How do we focus and hone in our focus on the Lord to choose him, choose his way? Because his way is love. And how do we have that same how do we how can we weep? Maybe you just spend some time and weep for the world. Weep for your friends, weep for your coworkers, weep for your family. Say God if they only knew what brought peace. And then get ticked off enough to go and do something about it. <laughs> to go and bring transformation. What's Jesus' transformation? Life. Love. How do we engage? Through words of love, through acts of compassion. Through truth spoken in love. The gospel is already offensive. We don't have to help help it by being offensive ourselves. The way in which our attitude exudes the love of God, the, the character of God, we exude Jesus to people in this world. And if if they only see people who are angry, they're not seeing Jesus. Do they see the the rage of passion? Zeal. And so as we wrap up here this morning, know this, that God loves you. God will fight for you. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Take, you know, rejoice, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let that endurance have its full effect. Let it grow in maturity, growing in your faith. Your image of God growing and getting bigger. The image of God's love growing and getting bigger. Let the truth and the goodness and the love, the passion and compassion of Jesus Christ transform your life and spur us on to keep going Keep going, no matter what it looks like in front of us. 
no matter what human history looks like in front of us, keep going. And worship the Lord. Glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for this time together. Lord, I pray I've honored you. <laughs> I pray that I have done due justice to your, to your word. I pray that you would, um, Lord, just empower us to wrestle with these things this week and to wrestle with your call for our lives. For us as a church, Lord, as we, as we want to go forward, as we want to move forward in faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus, to, in faithfulness to your word, in faithfulness to the scripture, in faithfulness to your love to exude this, the fruit of lives that are filled with your Holy Spirit. Fill us with joy. Fill us with life, Lord. Fill us with hope here today and forevermore, all the days of our life. Give us boldness, Lord, to proclaim the gospel of peace, the gospel of joy, the gospel of grace, the gospel of your great love. For you so loved the world, God, that you sent your only begotten Son, so that whoever would believe in you would not perish but have eternal life. Let that be the words on our lips and the shoes on our feet to take the gospel of salvation to a needing world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.